So only in New England can you go from 75 degrees to snow. Now, you cannot blame me for the snow today. It's going it's to snow. It's, I don't pray out loud about it anymore. I mean, that's why I wore the spring shirt, because I put the, the umbrella out on the deck and the tables out there. So, I, you know, I, I enjoy the, the seasons. So I'm ready for some springtime. So don't blame me. I don't want to see Facebook quotes, curse Dennis, shut up Dennis, all those things that get put out there. It's not my fault. Totally. Right? I got my spring. My spring is sprung. So, all right. Um, we're working through the Ten Commandments, week number two. And it's interesting how when, when you start to get into the Word of God, different faith traditions within, within the, the title of Christianity can interpret things differently and, and look at things um, in, in a different nuance or a different interpretation. Uh, what, what I found is in, in say, like the, um, the Lutheran tradition and the Catholic tradition, they take the first two commandments and, and they make them as one. So um, you shall not uh, have any other gods before me, and the do not make an image of anything. They, they lump that into one as, as the first command, and they make up the difference at the end by separating out, um, you should not covet your neighbor's wife, you should not covet your na- neighbor's goods. So that's nine and ten. But we're going to separate the first two out, and that's kind of the Protestant tradition. Um, and so what we're going to look at is, so the first command, you should have no other gods before me, and then the second command we're going to deal with in, 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 in and of itself, because it talks, about, it talks about worshiping God the right way. And so the first commandment says that you shall have no other gods. So we have one God, our Lord, our Savior, God, the God of the Bible. This is the God. And then the second commandment talks about worshiping the right God in the right way. Because there are false ways to worship the Lord. And, and, and in that meaning that we kind of invent how we would like to worship. And God says, no, no, no. See, there's a way that all this needs to play out. And so let's, let's just hit the, the second command. Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 through 6. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. That's number two. We're going to call that the second of the ten. There's a a story in the scripture in the Old Testament about a king, King uh, Jehu. I believe that's the way you pronounce his name. And that he uh, lived in a almost righteous way before the Lord. So what he did was as king in Israel, he uh, destroyed the worship of Baal. He got rid of the altars. In fact, he would even eliminate uh, Jezebel, who who was one of the... um, the high-ranking worshipers of this, of this fake religion, this, this um, idolatry. And so Jehu comes in, and he destroys 
everything. He gets rid of the worship. He rids Israel of this, this fake God. But what's interesting is in 2 Kings, this is what it says about him. It says, so Jehu destroyed Baal worship in Israel. However, he did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had, which he had caused Israel to commit. The worship of the golden calves at Bethel and Dan. So interesting, right? So he steps in and he gets rid of this idolatry. He gets rid of the worship of the false gods. But he allows this idea of golden calves or the golden calves to remain. Now, when you kind of unpack this and get a little bit more in depth of what's going on here, these golden images did not represent false gods. It was their representation of the one true God, the God of Israel. And that God is now being worshipped in the image of a golden calf. And it was still leading the people astray. Now the second command, the second command is one of the longer ones. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing children for the sin of the parents, third and fourth generation, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. There seems to be four parts to this one command. There's the command itself. There's the reason for the command. There's the warning if you break the command. And then there's the blessing if you keep it. Now the command is very simple. Don't make an image out of anything of anything that's been created in the entire universe. That covers everything. You can't, you're not to make something in the created universe, an image of or a representation of God. Now, we have to be careful because this is not talking about art or this is not. In fact, in, in Exodus, as God is kind of laying out what the temple is supposed to look like, it says that he gives skill to people, to Israelites, to create works of art that will decorate the temple. So this is, not, this is not about creating artwork. This is about creating an image that you are going to use to represent God and then worshiping or kneeling down to that image. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. This is about worshiping something other than God. They were not allowed, we were not allowed to create anything that we believe might represent God and worship it. Now remember, uh, Israel's come out of Egypt. Egypt had gods for everything, and they were represented by all kinds of different things, uh, primarily animals. But the one true God refuses to be represented by anything that he has created. And one of the reasons, the reason for that is when he says that he is a jealous God. Our God is a jealous God. He has this passion, this zeal for his people and for the love of his people. And, and when we talk about jealousy, many times we think of jealousy as being a negative thing. It has this, this uh, connotation of envy or, you know, you wanting something that somebody else has or, you know, you're going to take something that somebody else has because, because you want it. But the jealousy of God is very different from human jealousy. 
Maybe we can we kind of say it this way, that God's jealousy is about the intensity and devotion that he has for the objects he loves. We are the object of God's love. And there is an intensity and devotion that he has toward us. Can you imagine that? That God is devoted, devoted to loving us. It's part of his character. It's part of his, his nature. God loves you so much that he is jealous and he does not, will not share you with anything else. This whole idea of the zeal, the intensity, the devotion he has in love is a big deal to him. Because look at the, the warning that comes You shall not bow down to them or worship them, these idols. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Punishing the children. Seems a bit intense. Maybe even a little unfair. Like, why or how would God punish someone who doesn't seem guilty of the sin, especially punishing the children for the sin of the parents. And if you look at the word sin in kind of the original language, it, it means to, to, um, to pervert or twist. Punishing the twistedness of the parents to the third and fourth generation of children. There's a perversion in our worship, when we create something, even if it's something to represent God, and we create this thing, and then we bow down to, to worship him. When we represent God other than how he calls us to worship, when we worship him in that way, there is a, a punishment, a consequence to it. But to punish kids for the... Sin of the parents? I guess, I guess there are family dynamics that just kind of run universal through, through history. See, children will imitate their parents. Children are always watching their parents. Even when we don't think they're watching, they're watching. And it seems that children, I don't know why, at least my children I have found... They, they like to imitate the things that I don't want them to imitate in me. It's gotten better over the years. I think I've been able to beat it out of... No, I mean, um, love it out of them. Um, <laughs> but what this says is that not only does the father pass down the bad example, or the parents pass down the bad example to the children, but he also passes down the guilt of the sin, the weight of the sin. God holds families responsible to the way families live their lives. And as you read through the Old Testament, the God's covenant people, when the parents would break the covenant with the Lord, the whole family was held in judgment. The whole family was held responsible. If you look in uh, the story of Achan, it says that uh, he sinned, he kept some of the plunder back, he buried it. His whole family was brought to judgment before Israel. Now we have to be very careful with this idea. 
Because Ezekiel chapter 18, it says, The son shall not suffer for the sin of the father, and the father shall not suffer the sin for the sin of the son. And so what's what's going on here? The, The truth of the matter is God will not and does not condemn the innocent, but only the guilty. Because we have to look that says, He will punish the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who will hate me. So the children have grown to be guilty of the same sin as the parents. They were taught to hate the things of God. And so they too hold that guilt. God is not punishing little baby children. He's punishing those who have made the decision to follow in their parents' footsteps to hate the things of God. That's the warning. That's the consequence for breaking the command. But you know, I just see the, the promise is much greater, much more powerful than the curse. Because the blessing for loving God isn't just to the third and fourth generation. The blessing for loving God goes to a thousand generations. That's the biblical way of saying forever. That it will not stop. To receive God's blessing, we respond to his love by then in return loving him. That's the blessing. That's God's desire. That all would fall in love with his goodness. All would fall in love with his grace and his mercy. The invitation is there. And the blessing comes when we say yes. Thank you for this. And I love you, Lord, as you have loved me. Our God loves us with a jealous, passionate love. And the blessing comes when we love him in return. Because he desires most from us a relationship of love. The blessing triumphs the curse. Because it's in God's heart to bless. It's his desire to bless. He, he wants none to perish. And I've seen this time and time again. God intervening in a family by turning the hearts of the parents and turning hatred into love and turning, and turning uh, disobedience into obedience and changing entire families. And when we answer the call of God loving us to love him in return, he begins to establish a very sacred legacy that will flourish for generations to come. Now, please understand, this is not just something that's automatic. Because children will have to make a decision, a decision whether to follow the things of God or not. And some may not. But we still have to hold on to this promise of blessing by faith that for generations to come, those who love God have, have uh, set up this precedence of blessing. And so as parents, we need to be concerned about how we live our life. We need to be concerned about the second command. Our children watch us even when we think they're not. And so we have to ask ourselves continually, what is most important to us? 
Is it, is it climbing the corporate ladder? Is it our building our portfolio? Is it uh, whatever it is? Is it distracting us from the love and the worship of God? Because if we made something else other than him, number one, we have entered into idolatry. See, when a, when a parents neglect the worship of God, when parents neglect the love of God, those consequences can very much last into the generations. But parents who, who, who treasures the things of God, parents who worship the things of God, who have put him first place in the family, he promises a blessing for generations to come that his love will be poured out. So we have, to, we have to look at ourselves. We have to take stock in who we are. We have to take stock in the things that we have prioritized in our lives because idolatry, this, this worshiping something other than God, is so, so subtle in our culture. It sneaks in and it grabs a hold of us before we even can, can, can um, recognize that it has us. And sometimes it's very good things that kind of suck us in. We talked about that last week. And again, it's, it's easy to kind of fall into the mindset that idol worship is something in the past. It's, it's something that's, that's Old Testament. I mean, certainly we don't, have, we don't have idols in the church. You see no gold calf. If we did, I'd bring it to good old Tom and get some money for it. But that's just me. And so we, we get lured into thinking that the whole idol thing, that's just Old Testament stuff. We don't have idols in the church. We think we're okay. But remember when we set, set out the, at the onset of this series that the commandments are both physical and spiritual. They're, they're both external and internal. And so these commands speak not only to our behaviors, but it speaks to what's in our hearts. And this is getting to the things that are in our hearts. And we have to be careful that when we create these, these images of God, that we lose focus and we no longer can hear the word of God. Moses, in Deuteronomy, he, he, he writes this. He said, You saw no form of any kind the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the fire. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully so that you do not become corrupt and make for yourselves an idol, an image of any shape, whether formed like a man or a woman or like any animal on earth or any bird that flies in the air. And it goes on to say about any type of fish in the sea. You didn't see an image on the mountain. Therefore, watch yourself. You didn't see an image on the mountain when God spoke to you. We live in this tension in our culture because everything is very visual. We are flooded with images all day long. Sights and pictures and, and ads and videos Social media is, is, the foundation of it is pictures and, and looking at stuff. And I know that 
some will say there's, there's, a, there's studies that show that people remember things more when you add some type of visual component to it. And I, I would think that it's true. But there's a fine line between the visual and the Word of God. Because God has always been revealing himself through his Word, even in Christ, who was the Word. God spoke creation into existence. And so that images can distract us from hearing the word of the Lord. We get caught up in what we can see and we start to neglect the things that he might be speaking to us. The story of Elijah, Old Old Testament. He's standing on the mountain and it says that a, a wind came and it just tore apart the mountain. God wasn't in the wind. And then an earthquake shook the mountains And it says God wasn't in the earthquake. And then fire. But God wasn't in the fire. And then the scripture says, And then came a gentle whisper. So all of these visual elements, wind, fire, earthquake, God wasn't there. And then came a whisper. And Elijah knew that the Lord was in that whisper. We begin to make idols when we begin to try to manipulate God into something that we want him to be and that he's not. It seems that many people are on a quest to find a more user-friendly God when they kind of be molded and shaped to fit our purpose, the things that we like. And we have this mentality, if, if I do A, followed by B, then God is going to obviously do C. If I, if I just, if I get up in the morning and say all of my prayers, then obviously God is going to give me the things that I ask for. If I read all of the Christian parenting books about how to raise children and then apply those said principles to my children, then obviously God is going to give me perfect children. (laughs) But the Lord will not be manipulated into doing our bidding. See, by telling us not to make idols, what he is saying to us is, I will not be captured, contained. I will not be assigned or managed by anyone or anything. God wants us to trust him, not to use him. He wants us to trust and not use. And I believe we make idols in our heart when we worship certain things about God and we kind of leave the other things out. Like we, we, we like the amazing love of God. But yet we forget sometimes the judgment of the Lord. We love mercy. It's new every morning. But the wrath of God is real to those who would not believe. And I've had conversations with people over the years. And um, there's this theme that, that runs through many of the conversations. And they say, you know, I just, I don't like religion. And, and, I, and I'm with them on that. But then they say, you know, I have, I have my own beliefs about God. And there lies the danger. Because they have created a God in their own image. 
not the God of the Bible. They have created a God that's comfortable. It fits nicely in their lifestyle. He doesn't demand too much. He doesn't want too much. And he's, he's good with exactly the way that you're living your life. That's creating an image of God who is not how he reveals himself in this, his word. And I think all of us are tempted at times to, to kind of worship him the way we want to or, or create him the way we would want him to be. We emphasize things that we're comfortable with and we kind of disregard the rest of the things. I mean, I even know people who, who the scripture has become an academic pursuit. And they're very knowledgeable in all kinds of meaty things about culture and theology. And theology has become the God. And they have, they have neglected this love relationship that he wants to have with each and every one of us. Knowing scripture is good and it's important. But when it replaces that relationship, we're in trouble. We're in trouble. And I think in, in all of us, there's always this this little bit of legalism that we're always fighting with because sometimes what motivates us is, is duty or tradition or um, I should or I have to instead of this deep gratefulness and thankfulness for his grace and love. So instead of making a God... Instead of trying to make God in our image, we pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit that we would be transformed into his image. That's ultimately what we desire. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, when, we're in that, when we are in that relationship, the Holy Spirit reshapes us and remakes us. It's the scriptures say that the old person is gone and there's something new in its place. We begin, it's called sanctification, that we begin to look like Jesus. That's all his work. You can't behave yourself into it. You can't do good into it. That's by the grace of God. Now, in Genesis, I, I, don't, I don't have the verse up there. In Genesis chapter 1. In verse 26, it says that, so, so God's going through creation and, he, and he's making all the stuff. And then towards the end of chapter 1, it said, Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. And then it goes on to say that it's going to rule over all of the things of the earth. Let us make mankind in our Trinity, Father, Son, Spirit, image. We, as men and women, have already been made in the image of God. That's why he will not stand for any other image to be made of him. He already has one. Look around. Look in this room. Every person in here has been made in the image of God. He has made this image to reflect back into the world his love, his grace, his mercy, his compassion, his zeal for his glory. 
He has created living, thinking, working, speaking, breathing, human beings. We are image bearers of God. (laughs) Imagine that. And so we're not allowed to create another image. We're not allowed to bow down to another image. Don't think we're allowed to bow down to each other. I wonder how differently we would live if every moment of every day we remembered we have been made in the image of God. I wonder how different we would think of ourselves. But I also wonder how different we may treat others as we look at them as an image of God. Even those who do not believe, who do not follow the scripture, who do not love God, they have been made in his image. It doesn't say that just the Christians were made in the image of God. We all have been. How would we treat others if we looked at them as image bearers? How would those conversations go? Especially with those outside the church. It's a question worth asking, a question worth thinking about. God is passionate about his love. He sent Jesus for the world but all who would believe in him. He will not share us with any other fake God or any image that we might want to produce in place of him. He calls us to worship him in spirit and in truth. Father, thank you for your word the love that you have, the blessings that you pour out. Strengthen each and every one of us this morning, Father, that that we would know the love that you have for us and that we would bear that image to the world. In grace and mercy, Father, help us to worship you And spirits worship you in truth. I thought this morning we'll end with this song, so why don't we stand together and worship?